You are listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Cigarette smoking leads to a whole host of medical problems for our patients. How can we best help them address this difficult addiction? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host. And with me today is Dr. Ellen Prokazka, Assistant Chief of Research at the Denver VA Medical Center in Denver. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Prokazka. Well, glad to talk with you today. We certainly, as medical professionals, are all very much aware of the consequences of cigarette smoking. How are we doing as a country in terms of addressing this problem? Well, certainly overall, there's been tremendous progress in the last 30 to 40 years, particularly since the Surgeon General report in 1964. If one thinks back to our parents' generation, among men in particular, over 60% of men would have been current smokers if you asked them in the 1950s. Today, if you look at you know, current surveys, the smoking rates are hovering around 20% in many states in the United States. So tremendous progress overall, yet uh, as clinicians, I think we all recognize that Every day in clinic, we see individuals uh, with a variety of healthcare problems that are triggered by their ongoing smoking. So lots of progress overall, but I think a lot of room for improvement yet, particularly on the patient side of things, uh, not just the public health side of things. And I have the general impression that certain subsegments of the population, we may be seeing an increase in smoking. I think of uh, young women in particular. Is, is that still true? Well, yes. I mean, smoking is not uniform. It's clearly related to factors such as education and income. So the higher educated an individual is, the less chance of smoking. Greater the income or socioeconomic status, the less chance of smoking. But there are other factors, as you mentioned, for example, among young people, issues of weight control sometimes are uh, triggering people to initiate smoking when they might not otherwise. And so the way I kind of view smoking is it's a little bit like a river in that there are channels or currents of types of smoking. And so, you know, for example, within a group of young women, the example you gave, there may be a fair amount of smoking sort of among people who are friends with each other. And it's that sort of social network issue. And that creates a lot of problems. I mean, when you talk with patients who are current smokers, whether young or old, and ask them how many of your friends smoke, you'll find that many of them will report that a lot of their friends and family smoke. Yet if you go and ask, let's say, the clinicians who are caring for them in a, a clinic or a hospital setting how many of their friends smoke, and the answer is going to be very, very low. So smoking is kind of linked or lumped together. And so that means there are many challenges. And, you know, certainly if we look just from the public health perspective, there are many uh, socioeconomic, ethnic groups, racial groups where smoking rates are tremendously high and others where it's quite low. And that's one of our challenges is to try to achieve uniform reduction in the smoking rates. And it sounds like there may be some issues with the caregivers relating to all the pressures and all the forces that lead a particular person to smoke because the populations are so different. Well, that's exactly right. And, you know, as I mentioned, like the income and socioeconomic status, that's closely tied to things like access to care, which may make it harder for a person to, let's say, obtain effective smoking cessation services. You know, for example, if my insurance status, depending on my insurance status, I may or may not have coverage for medications. 
which may mean that I'm going to have more difficulty quitting even if I'm motivated to take action. At this point, is there any debate or doubt that this is a true addiction? No, this has been studied for many, many years. It is true in the 70s there was question about that, but there's been a lot of research on that, you know, starting with really the first identification of a clear-cut tobacco withdrawal symptom syndrome. And that's been seen and studied a lot that patients within several days of quitting smoking abruptly will develop a wide variety of symptoms, ranging from urges and craving to sleep problems, digestive problems, other issues. So the withdrawal component, I think, has been well proven and well accepted. The other part of the coin on the addiction that was a problem for many years was people do not get euphoria from smoking like you might with some other psychoactive drugs. However, they've done you know, lab-based studies where they've taken people who are, for example, experienced drug users and used infusions of nicotine, cocaine, and other drugs and sort of assessed the psychoactive properties of it. And really, those drugs are comparable. For a non-smoker to try to relate, stopping cigarette smoking is at least as difficult as stopping other drugs that we think of as very addictive. That's certainly true. And, you know, again, it's a clinical commonplace to run across patients who, for example, were able to control their drinking problem and have been not drinking for many years and yet are still struggling with smoking. We see that every day in our clinics, that's for sure. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and we are speaking with Dr. Alan Prokaska, the Assistant Chief of Research at the Denver VA Medical Center. We are talking about smoking and smoking cessation. Dr. Prokaska, are there well-documented benefits for people who have smoked for a long time of quitting? I'll often hear, well, I've smoked for so long, what good is it going to do me to quit now? Again, many people who smoke have that similar opinion. Again, this has been studied quite a bit. It's very clear that there are short-term benefits to quitting at any age. So, for example, when one smokes, you inhale carbon monoxide that goes across the alveoli, gives you carboxyhemoglobin. And when one quits smoking, the carboxyhemoglobin washes out or dissipates. And depending on the individual, the carboxyhemoglobin levels may be quite significant and may have an important impact on, for example, their exercise capacity. And it's not unusual to see people who have carboxyhemoglobin levels or 5 or 8% from cigarette smoking which has a detrimental effect and, again, has a short-term benefit in terms of cessation. There have been many studies on issues such as the mortality benefit of cessation, and that's been looked at in cardiovascular disease, cancer, emphysema, and it's quite clear that cessation does reduce the risk. Now, depending on how long an individual has smoked and how much they've smoked, the risk may drop down to that of somebody who never smoked. But for many individuals, there's always a residual risk. And, you know, we see that, you know, for example, in the area of lung cancer, where tobacco smoke causes genetic changes in the lung. You know, it damages DNA. And those changes can be irreversible. And so in many cancer centers, you'll see that half of new lung cancers are in people who quit smoking. So, the risk diminishes, but it doesn't generally drop down to that of a non-smoker. But it's clear that in terms of lung function, cardiac risk, 
cancer risk, getting rid of the offending agent, namely tobacco, leads to clear benefits in terms of mortality and survival. And the other component of your question was, well, I'm at a certain age, maybe it's too late to help me. But that, again, has been looked at, and really the benefits are there pretty much whatever age an individual is. And I think as clinicians, we need to, when patients bring that up, well, I've smoked for so long, it won't do me any good. I think we need to counter that with the facts that, hey, your respiratory function may improve the reduction in risk of, let's say, coronary disease kicks in relatively rapidly, you know, within a period of months, not necessarily years. The reduction in cancer risk takes longer, but that happens as well, even with someone who's smoked a long time. And the COPD or who may still be smoking, is it a palpable benefit that they could feel in a matter of months that their breathing really is different? It depends to some extent on how long they've smoked and the extent of COPD. For example, one health study in the 90s showed that there was a you know, clear improvement with smoking cessation for people with sort of earlier stages of COPD. And depending on the age and depending on the severity, pretty much everyone will revert to what you would call the normal age-related decline in lung function. And some people may bounce up to a better level of lung function. Again, certainly in our patients here, we've seen a variety of responses that way. If you take the person who's, let's say, in their 40s and maybe has early signs of uh, COPD, you know, obstruction on spirometry, you can often see an improvement you know, over a period of six months or so after quitting smoking. The one thing that is probably useful to remind your patients of, though, is that if a person has, let's say, chronic bronchitis or COPD, they may have a transient increase in their cough and sputum production after they quit for the first couple of weeks. And so that's something to sort of warn patients about, that they may have more sputum production before they have less. Yeah, I've certainly seen that anecdotally when somebody stops and they'll come in with a bronchitis, you know, acute bronchitis. Why did I stop? Look what's happening to me. But You know, and once in a while, particularly if it's in the wintertime or something, you may have someone that would be a bronchitis of a level where you have to, you know, treat it. The vast majority of people, it's more a matter of, well, I have some more cough and then it goes away. But, you know, it's useful to warn patients about that because they are going to run into that. Are there particular things that nicotine does that might be positive that we need to watch for in our patients when they quit to make sure that it's not going to lead to them relapsing? There has been research on the issues of, you know, could there be detrimental effects to quitting? And in the context of inflammatory bowel disease, that was one of the first ones, right, where there were issues of, okay, ex-smokers, perhaps having more trouble than those who are current smokers. You know, the other one that's come up has been in the Parkinson disease realm. And those things have been looked at. I mean, even with ulcerative colitis, people have done therapeutic trials with transdermal nicotine as an example. But those are pretty rare birds overall. And certainly in terms of risk-benefit, it's pretty clear the benefits far outweigh potential risks and those areas. That being said, as a clinician, it's important to be aware of stuff like that because patients will bring it up. Patients are often in an ambivalent mode about quitting. And so the headline in the paper that says, well, you know, 
quitting smoking is associated with worsening of some condition is something that a person will hang on to to kind of say, well, maybe I won't take action now. Uh, that's all they need to postpone quitting. And I've heard patients say, I can't concentrate as well, the weight issue you brought up. Do we need to be aware of those kind of things when people quit so they don't relapse? Well, you know, again, part of the tobacco withdrawal symptom, the issue of concentration is one of the things that's seen. You know, that if you look at people over the first, you know, say 10 days, two weeks, their concentration is diminished compared to what it was before. And that's one where, again, probably number one, warning the patient can help you on that. The other thing is that's where, to some extent, the drug therapy may help ameliorate some of those symptoms, you know, and that's part of our job as clinicians is to sort of assess what's the right thing for a given individual. Well, I want to thank Dr. Alan Prokaska, Assistant Chief of Research at the Denver VA Medical Center. He's been our guest as we've been discussing smoking cessation. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.